to another episode of Issue by Issue, a DC Comics completionist podcast, the only podcast around that's going issue by issue through the entirety of the DC multiverse, starting with Action Comics number one. I'm your host, as always, Nick Byers. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Uh, You know, it's Garfield's least favorite day. It's Monday. And that means that we're going to be covering some Golden Age issues today. And we're going to be covering Detective Comics number 42 with some Batman and Crimson Avenger. And Adventure Comics number 53 with some Our Man and Sandman. Uh, But as always, we need to set the scene with some real-world history of what was going on when these issues were hitting the newsstands, when people were picking them up, what, what was going on in their lives when they were reading them, all that kind of stuff. So let's get into that. July 3rd. Exiled Ethiopian Emperor, oh, I'm going to butcher this so bad, Haile, or Hale, H-A-I-L-E, Selassie, arrived in Khartoum from Britain to prepare for the reconquest of his country from the Italians with Britain's help. Uh, so that's World War II related. The, the Italians had a very uh, successful uh, campaign in Africa during World War II, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, July 5th, Operation Fish takes place. A British convoy, including HMS Battery, uh, sailed from Greenock, which is in Scotland, for Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is in Canada, carrying gold bar and other valuables worth $1.7 billion for safekeeping in Canada to keep them out of the clutches of the Nazis and the Italians uh, in case of a, a successful invasion and takeover of Britain. Uh, This is the largest movement of wealth in history. That's a lot of money to be moving uh, all at once. Uh, Now it's electronic, so stuff like that maybe happens, but uh, this is physical money, so that's a little bit different. July 6th, the Story Bridge opened in Brisbane, or Brisbane, uh, Australia. It is the longest cantilever bridge in Australia, which if you don't know what cantilever is like I didn't, it is a bridge that basically there's a section of it that is only supported on one side. So it is basically like there is a foundation, and that is the only thing holding one side of the bridge. Uh, and the middle is is basically freestanding, uh, just from being held up by the the supports on the foundation. So uh, it was, or it is, uh, 777 meters long, uh, or for Americans, 2,549 feet. Uh, so it's a very long bridge. Uh, July 7th, if you're a music fan of one specific band, Ringo Starr, the drummer for the Beatles, was born in Liverpool, India. I almost said India, England. Uh, so that's cool. I'm not a huge Beatles fan, which is always, you know, people get mad at me when I say, oh, I'm just not a fan of the Beatles. But I'm not. July 9th, U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt held a press conference in which he continued to skillfully dodge questions about whether or not he was seeking the Democratic nomination for a third term at next week's convention. Now, this is an important uh, like sticking point in, in presidential elections and, and how long you can be president. At this time, there was nothing on the books in the Constitution in anything that said how many terms a president could uh, go for, could could run for and be elected to. Uh, George Washington, the first president, if you don't know, he's the first president, uh, stopped at two. That was mostly due to age and him just needing uh, someone else to be in charge uh, so that it didn't turn into a sort of uh, monarch, monarchy or 
something like that. Uh, so he stopped at two, and every single president up to Franklin Delano Roosevelt stopped at two. Uh, uh, I don't know if there was ever before him a president who has thought about doing a third term. Uh, a lot of them got probably wouldn't have gotten elected to a third term, but uh, FDR is a very, very special case in the fact that there was a war raging in England, and he uh, also brought the country out of the Depression. So he had a lot of goodwill with the populace, and so he was the only president, uh, probably, uh, we, we can't tell for sure, uh, that that could possibly get a third term. So he's dodging questions, but he is going to run for a third term, as anyone who knows anything about uh, that time period or FDR uh, would know. And finally, July 10th, the Battle of Britain began. In its opening phase, the Luftwaffe, which is the uh, German Air Force, attacked coastal targets and shipping convoys in the English Channel with the goal of reducing Britain's air defenses and naval supply lines ahead of a general air offensive. Um, We know that this this campaign, this Battle of Britain, doesn't succeed in in invading and taking over Britain, but it's not a bad idea to get rid of air defenses and naval uh, supply lines, being as it's an island. Uh, So so not a a bad tactic by uh, the Nazis. Uh, and that's all that's going on. Not all, obviously, there's other stuff going on. But that's some of the big pieces of, of history that's going on when these issues are coming out. Uh, so let's get into the issues themselves, starting with Detective Comics number 42, released July 4th, Happy Birthday, America, uh, 1940, with a cover date of August 1940. No debuts in this one other than, you know, one-off villain uh, in each story, so uh, not a not an actual debut. On the production side, Batman, uh, the Batman story was written by Bill Finger, penciled by Bob Kane, and inked by Jerry Robinson. And the Crimson Avenger story was uh, written and drawn, as always, by John Letty. So, let's get into the Batman story. The Batman story starts off with a sort of uh, summary or um, a teaser of what the story is going to be like. And I'll just read that verbatim. It says, Batman with Robin the Boy Wonder. When Bruce Wayne, the Batman, went to Mr. Wiley's fashionable party and met Antle, the artist... Little did he realize that he was soon to plunge into the depths of a fantastic mystery. When Antle painted, someone died. How? Why? This was the puzzle of the case of the prophetic pictures. The puzzle of the case of the prophetic pictures. Wow. Wow, what a line. And we see on the page there is a a green skeletal figure, like a skeleton, uh, with a white cloak and hood. Draw a painting of a portrait, and it's of Batman, and there is a silhouetted figure about to throw a knife at him, um, which is like, wow, this is kind of out there for Batman stories. Normally, it's just like a guy, and the guys, or really any story, not just Batman stories, any stories from the Golden Age, like it's just a guy. So, are we gonna see like a living skeleton who uh, kills people based on paintings? I guess we'll find out now, won't we? Uh, we see. Uh, we see Bruce Wayne uh, talking to Dick Grayson. Uh, Bruce Wayne is getting ready for his party. Robin does very little in this issue, I should tell you. Um, he does. He has one scene where he, where he helps out, but really he's not doing a whole lot. 
Uh, and he's talking about Bruce going to this uh, Wiley party. And, uh, you know, Bruce says, oh, yeah, Wiley, he's a patron of many a starving artist. So um, he's, he's throwing a party for his newest one, Antle, the artist. Uh, so Bruce leaves and goes to the the party. He is he is uh, talked to by someone named Jim, not uh, not Jim Gordon. Jim Gordon does appear in this story, but not that's not him. Uh, Jim is not rich enough to go to a fancy party like this. And uh, he said, "This Jim person says, hello, Bruce. How are you? What have you been up? What have you been doing lately?" And uh, Bruce says, "Oh, nothing, Jim. Nothing. Work is too strenuous. It bores me." And as uh, Bruce walks away, uh, Jim and his date are talking. And he's like, oh, bored? Everything bores that guy. If he ever got excited about anything, I think they would declare a national holiday. And the woman says, they say he is probably the laziest, most useless chap in our set. Which is, I think, the first time we're seeing Bruce Wayne sort of depicting himself as this sort of lie-about, lazy, superficial like Playboy, that we see in, in other media and less so in, 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 I think, the modern DC. I mean, we I, Bruce Wayne is now more of like a rich philanthropist who he spends his money like doing philanthropy in Gotham. He's less of a, a, a lazy Playboy, at least from the stuff that I've read, um, which is interesting. I, I like that character choice uh, for Bruce. I like the, the lazy Playboy one. I don't, I mean, I do like the philanthropy one because I do think that rich people should actually do something with their money uh, instead of just hoarding it. Uh, but uh, I do like the, the sort of superficial playboy aspect of Bruce Wayne's uh, personality or mask of a personality. He then meets Mr. Wiley, the person throwing the party, uh, and he introduces him to Antle, the artist, and his manager, Mr. Bleak, uh, which, what a, what a bad last name. It's like, hi, I'm Mr. Bleak. Everything's so bad, you know? Uh, but he's actually a very chipper guy. He's very excited because Antle is going to paint the portrait of everyone in fashionable society, which just means rich people. Poor people can also be fashionable, but uh, it's all the rich people are going to get their portraits painted by Antle. And uh, Wiley says, I'm not a big fan of Antle's portraits, but I love his landscapes. I bought a bunch of them uh, in Europe. So it's, it's exciting. Uh, suddenly, a... Uh, a strawberry blonde. We'll go with a strawberry blonde-haired man comes up to Antle and says, Antle, you wretch. So you are here in America. And Antle says, Mikoff, you. And uh, Mikoff says, I should kill you as you killed my dear sister. You, you keep out of my way. I warn you. Else next time, I'll throttle you. Which means to choke, if you don't know what throttle means. Uh, it's then explained that uh, Mikoff's sister committed suicide uh, when Antle ceased loving her. So he broke off whatever relationship they were in, said, I don't love you anymore, and she, taking it badly, killed herself, which, I mean, if you don't want to live anymore, it's not up to anybody else to make that decision for you. So uh, so you do you. Uh, we then cut to outside. Uh, Bruce Wayne has gone out to do a terrible habit. He's going to smoke a cigarette. This is before Batman is like, I'm pure. I don't ever drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes. And uh, so he's smoking a cigarette, and he overhears some people yelling. Uh, someone's, some, someone's talking to someone named Mr. Ryder, and, he's, and this Mr. Ryder says, Stay away from my wife. This is the last time I'll tell you. And uh, 
Bruce reveals that this person that Mr. Ryder is talking to is Antle, the, the artist, and he comments that Antle seems to be quite the Casanova. This is because this is two sort of uh, relationships or affairs that he's been ha- that he's had in his lifetime, obviously. Yeah, artists, you know, you know artists. We all know artists. Um, and he comments, Bruce comments, that it looks like Antle has made an enemy of uh, the socially eminent Mr. Drake. That man has a qu- uh, quick temper. Now, I am, I am so far away from believing this is the same Mr. Drake that we'll eventually meet, who is uh, Tim Drake's father. I do just think it's very funny that he, even back here in 1940, there was a Mr. Drake in the sort of rich society uh, of Gotham. Because uh, Tim Drake's father is rich. He's a, he's a wealthy man. Uh, and I think it's just kind of funny and interesting that Mr. Drake is all the way back here in 1940, even though it's almost 100% not the same guy. Bruce gets home, and then there's this weird panel uh, where he goes into Robin's room and wakes him up, which like, rude. He's a young boy. He needs his sleep. Uh, and, you know, they talk about the party, and uh, Bruce, uh, Robin asks if anything's happened, and uh, Bruce says, no, no, but... From what I've seen, it looks like something could happen soon. Uh, we then see a sort of uh, montage of the the ensuing weeks after this party. And we see all these people who have gotten Antle to draw, or not draw, paint their portraits. And they're very nice portraits, you know? As far as you can tell, they're nice portraits because everybody is drawn. It's a comic book. Um, but one by one, these people who have gotten these portraits... They, you know, they'll walk by it one day, and they'll see, like, the first one has a knife into the chest. And um, one, a woman, she has a dart in her neck on the portrait. Which, they're, they're real darts and real knives and, and stuff like that. So someone has put them there. And then the next day, basically, after they find it, they, they're killed in the same way. So the guy whose portrait was stabbed with in the heart, he's stabbed in the heart, and he's found dead. Um, the woman who had a dart in her neck. She's an opera singer, and uh, on stage at her um, at the opera that she was in, uh, a dart goes into her neck and kills her, probably with some sort of poison. And, uh, the, you know, the news gets out that there's some sort of prophetic murders uh, doing, do, dealing with these paintings, and, you know, all the newsboys are, like, trying to hawk their newspapers, like, read all about it, read all about it, prophetic murders, you know, stuff like that. Uh, we then see a little bit of a longer uh, investigation into these portraits. We see a man who uh, has found his portrait with a rope around the neck dang- dangling from the portrait. And so he goes to, uh, he must go to Jim Gordon, but it doesn't say that it's Jim Gordon. But he goes to, we're going to presume the police, and you know, Jim Gordon says, Oh, don't worry, Mr. Warden. I'll have men stationed outside your rooms. No one will be able to get in here while I'm around. Now, if you remember from the uh, first Joker story, uh, the police also were like, yeah, we're going to station people around these places where people have been said they're going to be killed. And uh, what's their success rate? Oh, that's right. It's zero. It's a 0% success rate in stopping someone from getting murdered. Good job, police of Gotham City. Although it's not Gotham City, is it? Yet. It's, I, I've said Gotham numerous times, and it's not Gotham yet, is it? It's still just like New York City or vague metropolitan city. Um, so it's finally time for Batman to do something about this. So he, 
hears about the 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 newest sort of message prof- prophecy uh, on the painting, and so he dresses up as Batman. Doesn't take Robin with. Dick has to stay home. It's a school night, and he drives to uh, the apartment building uh, where this man, Mister Warren, has his duplex penthouse apartment. Now I don't know what a duplex penthouse apartment is. I know what a duplex is, which means there's two houses in one house, right? More house per house. But that they're like split. Or is that a split level? What's a duplex? Okay, no, I am right. Okay, it is. A duplex house plan has two living units attached to each other. Okay. So does that mean that this is a a two penthouse penthouse? Well, I, I okay, why? I feel like a penthouse is just, you know, it's one. But, I mean, more money, I guess. That makes more sense. It's like, yeah, we have two penthouses. So pay us twice. So Batman drives to this apartment building, and he uses uh, an oldie but a goodie, the suction pads uh, from his utility belt, uh, to, I guess, suction his way up this brick building, which I don't know if that works, because I don't know if if brick is a... Well, I, I know it's not. It's not a smooth enough surface for the suction cup to have a seal. So I don't know how, I don't know what kind of suction cups he's using, but they're amazing. Because it's not like there's windows. Because there's a panel uh, of the side of the building that Batman is climbing up. Not a single window on there. No window. So these are really, really advanced suction cups that he has attached to his arms or his hands and his knees. Uh, so he does. Somehow he gets up there. Uh, he, it also says in this caption, like a huge bat, the Batman moves up the sheer face of the building. Which, if you know anything about bat, bats, is true. Bats can't like take off from the ground. Their, their wings are not strong enough to do that and their bodies are too heavy. So they have to climb up and then they swoop down. So that's why they have that kind of swooping nature. is because they can't fly like like birds. They're less like less mobile in the air as birds um so that's really cool that's very interesting i don't think they did it on purpose to like be like yes this is what actual bats do too but it still happened and he uh you know he breaks into the penthouse and he finds mr warren uh hanging from uh, the ceiling and then and then uh, the cops come in and they say it's like suddenly as the door opens and uh, the uh, the plainclothes officer says, "I think we'll take a look and see how how Warren is." Uh, well, no, and the other uh, uh, uniformed officer says, "Well, nobody got past us, and it's a cinch that no one could get in here by the windows. What with a blank wall outside, like we saw, it's like why wouldn't you have someone? What? See, the thing is, in all of these sort of, we'll put men on you to like protect you. They're always just like outside. You know, there's never once a guy." inside hanging out with the possible victim like keep your eyes on him physically at all times that way you know he will not get killed and if he gets killed guess what you're also going to be killed because you're in the same room as him so uh, unfortunately for the batman this is exactly when the police come in and they see him standing next to this hanging body so they say hey it's the batman he's the murderer and the batman is the first time i think he's actually had like a conversation so to speak with the cops because he has this you know, a couple lines that he says to the cops. He says, surely you don't believe I had anything to do with this. My methods may be er, different, but I've always worked on the side of the law. Which, fair, but you have murdered people as we know, Golden Age Batman. So, maybe not always. 
Uh, he then leaps up, grabs the chandelier, swings over. It looks like he possibly kicks two policemen in the face, which, okay, I'm on the side of the law, but let me kick you in the face. Uh, and then he jumps down uh, outside of the room and uh, runs up the stairs of this penthouse apartment. And then he grabs a metal vase. Can't afford a real vase, Mr. Warren? You have to have a metal vase? Okay. Uh, and he rolls it down the steps, very Home Alone style. And then and then rides the banister down, very Home Alone style. And he sort of collides with the policemen as they get up after you know being knocked down by this large metal vase. Vase? Vase. Who knows? Uh, yeah, and then he continues to beat up the cops for one more panel. And... One says, you can't do this. And Batman says, that's where you're wrong. I am doing it. It's like, that's a fair point. You are doing it. You're in the middle of doing it, Batman. Uh, He then jumps in the car and races off. Just races off. Uh, And then a few days later, we cut to a few days later, uh, Bruce Wayne, in a great plaid uh, suit. It looks like a maybe orange. Um, And I say great... uh, sarcastically an orange plaid suit i don't think is is a good look but he's hanging out with uh commissioner gordon uh commissioner james gordon uh and they are just they're you know shooting the breeze like they do they're good friends uh when a man comes in and it is it is antle the artist and uh, he's telling the commissioner, you've got to do something. People are canceling orders. They're saying every time I paint someone, he dies. Or she, because a woman has died as well. Equal opportunity murderer. And so the commissioner asks him, well, okay, well, do you have any enemies? And Antle says, well, there's Mikoff. We saw him yell at me at that party. Uh, or Mr. Drake, I'm banging his wife. And he's not very happy about that. Uh, or his previously his agent and manager, uh, Mr. Bleak, because he fired him. You know, the little success got to his head, and he's like, I, I gotta fire you, even though you've been with me since I was poor, you know? No loyalty. And so Gordon's like, hmm, perhaps, but would these people kill other innocent humans just to settle an old score with you? That's the question. No, I think that they'd probably kill him. I mean, Mikoff said that he would, and... Uh, I, Mr. Drake probably would with his temper, and we don't know much about Mr. Bleak, but um, yeah, I just feel like if I wanted to ruin someone, I'd ruin them by. Well, I'm not going to say that on a recording. Ooh, that was close. I almost said something that could, you know in the future can be played in court or something. Um, so abruptly, uh, the door opens again. It's a it's a busy busy office, and uh, it's it's Wiley. It's Mr. Wiley. He says. Um, I saw my portrait yesterday. It had bullet holes in it. I, I foolishly kept it to myself like a dummy. And uh, last night, he had a visit from the murderer. Um, and he he had a tussle with the murderer. Uh, and the murderer clipped him on the arm. And he has his arm in a sling. So he's got a bullet hole in his arm. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to station people outside your room, Mr. Wiley, because that always works, says uh, Commissioner Gordon. And we're going to get the murderer and make sure he doesn't get in. Okay, Commissioner, I believe you. This time, you know, what is it? Like, uh, what we're in the Joker ones, like four? Like, and so this is, you know, like sixth, sixth times the charm. And we'll, we'll for sure do it this time. Um, another person then walks into the office. And Bruce comments, looks like this office is the main highway. Fair, it is. There's a lot of foot traffic in this office. I don't even think that... 
This would be a very cramped situation. There's five dudes in this office. Not a lot of seating. Not a very big office. Uh, and another person comes in, and I don't know. It's Mr. Travers. Mr. Travers. Uh, we've never met him before. But uh, he had found an arrow in his portrait. And uh, Commissioner Gordon says, you know, uh, Mr. Travers, your life is in danger. I'm, I'm going to assign some men. And Mr. Travers says, bah! If my life is in danger, I'll save myself. I'll take a cruise on my friend Roger's yacht. I won't be around when the murderer appears. Because, I mean, hey, that's probably as safe as having uh, the police watching your house, as we've seen. So that very night, uh, Batman and Robin, they suit up. But they're splitting up because Batman's got to go do some research on some bank statements. So Robin has to go to Roger's yacht. And protect Mr. Travers. So, I feel like a lot of Robin's solo adventures take place on boats, right? I mean, he's only had three. Three-ish, maybe. And, I mean, one was obviously Catwoman. That one was on a boat. Uh, the other one was at that boys' school, so that's not a boat. And then this third one, it's a boat. Hmm, a lot of boat-based activities for the boy wonder. Uh, he drives a boat. Maybe he, maybe he has a boating license. And so Batman's like, okay, I can send him on boat missions. So... He drives uh, the Batman boat, which is not bat-shaped at all yet, and uh, he climbs up the anchor rope of this yacht, and he, you know, is skulking around when he comes upon uh, Mr. Travers sitting in a chair smoking a cigar or a cigarette. It's not close enough for me to tell. Either way, gross. And behind him, skulking out of a, a door, is a person dressed in purple, wearing a beret, and holding a bow and arrow, and he's, he's getting ready to shoot an arrow at, I'm assuming, the back of Mr. Travers's head. It's going to be gruesome. But Batman using his hand, not Batman, <laughs> Robin using his handy-dandy sling, and also, like, amazing skill. Like, this is an insane skill. He hits the arrow out of the air as it's flying towards Mr. Travers. Could you imagine how difficult that would have to be with a sling? I'm not, like, talking a gun or another bow and arrow. I'm talking about a sling. Like, the rocks, hey, the rocks go faster than, than throwing, probably, but it's still just a rock. Wow. Good job, Robin. Uh, he and the, uh, the would-be murderer, uh, possibly already a murderer, because I'm assuming he's the guy who has been killing everybody else, uh, he, they fight. And we do see the face of the murderer, and it is a skeleton mask guy, so we do have a skeleton, but he has normal hands. He doesn't have, like, bone hands, so it's kind of lame. Uh, so they tussle, uh, and the the murderer, the skeleton man, he sort of gets some distance from Robin and shoots an arrow at him. But it doesn't hit him. He It hits his cape, pinning him to um, a wall of the yacht. And the, the skeleton man jumps over and I think even steals Robin's boat. Might just full-on steal Robin's boat. It's like, hey, that's, my, that's not my boat. That's Bruce's boat. I'm gonna, he's going to dock my allowance. Uh, and Robin attempts to jump into the boat, but misses and lands in the water. He's all wet. And he's like, ah, he's escaped. But at least I have saved a man's life. That's something. That is something, Robin. So true. Later that evening, uh, Robin has gotten back, and he's changed back into his Dick Grayson attire. He's wearing a red plaid sweater vest. Looks very, um, looks very Leave it to Beaver-y, which I don't know if that's out at this time. Let's do another quick Google Live on air. Leave 
it to Beaver. All the younger people are like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, Leave it to the Beaver is an American television uh, sitcom that follows the misadventures of a suburban boy and his family and his friends. Uh, it's set in, okay, it first it first aired in 1957, so no, about 17 years before Leave it to Beaver is, the, is Robin or Dick Grayson looking very much like either Beaver or Wally, his brother. Uh, Batman Returns. Uh, after after Dick has changed back into his, his civilian attire, and uh, but and Batman says that the hate is not the motive. So this person isn't trying to ruin Ansel. The motive is money, but he's not going to reveal anything more than that. The Batman has his secrets. Uh, the next day, he um, wakes up and get they they're both you know ready for the day and robin asks where are you going i thought you were working on our murder case and bruce says well i don't have time for that i have to go get my portrait painted by antel bum 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 uh then at antel's studio uh bruce you know bruce calms the fears of antel he's like yeah i you know i i don't believe any of those murders murder stories you know uh let's get to work uh, and Antle asks him, oh, why do you want your, you know, you're brave, Mr. Wayne. Why do, why, what would possess you to want a portrait made by me, you know, the person who's getting all these people killed? And uh, Bruce says, oh, you know, vanity. I like to look at myself. I always enjoy looking in the mirror, which, like, that makes one of us, you know. Uh, then And then days later, because obviously portraits can't be done in a day. Oh, well, maybe they could. They might be able to be done in a day, but it would be a long day. And uh, it wouldn't be very much fun. Ansel has not Ansel. See, I, it's Antel, but I I keep like thinking of Ansel Adams, the uh, photographer. But uh, it's Antel. Um, he has finished it, and Bruce comes and ah, it's finished finally. Never realized how handsome I am. I shall have to hang it in a prominent place. And Antel is thinking either he is a man without fear, or the most conceited fool I've ever seen. I'm telling you, that Playboy sort of facade works really well. Uh, Bruce then hangs it up over the fireplace and is, is, is still acting like, ah, rather good likeness, don't you think, Dick? And Dick is thinking, yeah, sure. What's gotten into him? He's acting super weird. Uh, the following morning, they find the portrait has bullet holes, three specifically uh, on the forehead area of the portrait. And uh, Robin's like, bullet holes. The murderer is telling you that you're going to be shot in the head. What are you going to do? And Bruce says, do? (laughs) Why nothing? I'm going to sit in this chair and wait for the murderer. And Dick is like, huh? Uh, That night, uh, we see Bruce. He is sitting in the chair. Looks like he's reading a book uh, by the fireplace, uh, which is bad for your eyes. It doesn't look like there's any lights on. So it's bad for your eyes to, to read in the dark. Uh, and behind him, creeping in, is the skeleton man. Except now he's not a green skeleton. He's a yellow skeleton, and his coat is red. So, cool. Little, little color change. And um, uh, the, the skeleton stealthily sneaks up behind Bruce and holds the gun to his head and pulls the trigger. Point blank. And after the gun goes off, the Batman jumps out of the closet. Says, that'll be enough of that. And the, the murderer says, who are you? And Batman says, my card, sir, as he punches the skeleton man in the face. The Batman at your service. Uh, they then tussle. They're doing a little bit of tussling. 
you know, the, the killer gets a hold of uh, Batman's neck and he says, I've killed so many. One more or less doesn't matter to me. You shall die. And uh, he kind of tackles Batman onto the table. Batman does some judo move and sort of like kicks the guy over top of him and says happy landings and then punches him across the jaw. Um, he says, yes, sir, fella, you're number one on the knit parade. Which, I think a knit is like a little tiny bug. So he's calling him a bug. And uh, Bruce then grabs the, or I guess Batman grabs the Bruce that's sitting on the chair and lifts it up. And underneath is Dick Grayson. Uh, and no, his head is not full of bullet holes. Uh, Robin explains that, you know, he put his hands through the sleeves to make it the arms move. Make it seem like he was a real person. But luckily he's too short, because he's a child, to get all the way up up inside of this sort of hollow dummy of Bruce Wayne. And uh, so the bullets went right through the head of the dummy instead of going through also the head of Dick Grayson. Which, like, I, I know that he has signed up to be a vigilante, but I don't know if you necessarily needed to put him in sort of a really dangerous situation. What if he... Well, I guess he wouldn't have shot the dummy in the body since the portrait had the bullet holes through the face so i guess there really was no no you know chance that it would go wrong but still i mean don't do that uh they then do a very scooby-doo sort of mask off reveal and it is revealed that it is mr wiley the benefactor of antle the artist and uh, batman then explains that uh wiley bought Antle's paintings very cheaply in Europe and once bringing him over here he uh, you know he wanted to sell them for a, a large amount of money because he is having money issues those are the bank statements that Batman had to go look at and so he came up with the idea of making it so that there's something some sort of tragedy connected to his art uh, not necessarily him dying because we do know that after artists are dead, their work is more valuable because there's not going to be any more. But to make it sort of like, oh, this is the artist that painted those portraits that uh, prophesized people getting murdered. So I'll buy them for a lot of money. Uh, and so the Batman is going to, uh, uh, you know, take him to jail. But uh, Wiley gets out of the grips of Batman and grabs the gun that was dropped on the floor and points it at his temple, pulls the trigger... And kills himself. And uh, Robin, or nope, Dick Grayson says he couldn't stand the disgrace. And Batman then says something butch, butch, buck wild. He says, much better this way. Now I think we'd better call the police and tell them that Mr. Bruce Wayne's life was saved by the Batman. Sorry, Batman. It's much better that he killed himself. He doesn't have to face justice. You, what, you just think, like, I caught him, and I revealed his plan to Dick Grayson. So that's enough. Now he's dead. Okay. All right, I don't think that that's better. I think maybe murderers should have to face justice. You know what I'm saying, Batman? Of course you don't. Uh, but that's going to do it for the Batman story uh, in Detective Comics number 42. So let's move on to the Crimson Avenger. And as is usually the case with uh, Crimson Avenger... He only gets six pages, so this story is very, very light on details. Uh, just a lot of a lot of action pieces, which is fine. Uh, so it starts off with Lee Travis leaving the Globe Leader. He is obviously the editor, if you will remember. 
And he bumps into a man uh, who's uh, walking down the street and knocks his hat off. And, and the man yells at him, says, uh, why the deuce don't you watch where you're going? And, um, you know, uh, Lee Travis says, oh, I'm sorry. And he, you know, the, the old man stumbles off. And Lee Travis, being the inquisitive reporter that he is, is like, hmm, it looks like that girl that he, that man is following, that girl in red. And he seems to be in quite a hurry. So I'm going to trail him and uh, see what's up. So he does that. He trails him. And suddenly, on a more deserted street, uh, the man yells, Okay, boys, that's the one. Grab her. Into the alley now for our getaway. Quick, we've been seen. And uh, Lee Travis is like, kidnappers, I'm going to get my hands on those dogs. And they pull this girl into this alley. And by the time that Lee Travis gets around the corner of the alley, they are gone. And he says, hmm, that's impossible. This is a blind alley and there's not a doorway in sight. And uh, he says, well, the Crimson will have to take a look at this tonight. So he does. That night, uh, the Crimson Avenger returns to the scene and finds a jeweled brooch or brooch, depending on how you say the word. Uh, probably dropped off the girl's dress as they dragged her into the entrance. And he, you know, he feels along the wall, the brick wall where he found the brooch, and he finds a hidden spring behind a brick. And he pushes it, opens up a secret door. And uh, down, down, down a spiraling stone staircase, he sees a man dressed in red robes. And he knocks him out with the butt of the gas gun. And then creeps along the corridor to a window, which overlooks a meeting room where a group of nine other men dressed in red robes are talking to the uh, tied-up uh, woman that was kidnapped. And uh, so they explain. The, the, head, the head guy explains. He says, uh, At this table uh, is a group of the greatest masterminds in crime and science. We intend to rule the world starting first with this country, but before we can make our first move, we must have the aid of a beautiful girl to help us trap... Some of the government leaders that are on our list, my agents have been watching you for some time, and you have been selected. If you accept your, our offer, you shall become rich and powerful with us. Refuse, and you die. Now, I have to just poke a bit of a hole into this sort of plan. They needed a beautiful girl to uh, kind of, I guess, honey trap uh, the uh, government officials, government leaders. So they're going to, like... I guess if, if this is FTR, if, if we're living in America, they're going to use this beautiful woman to honey, honey pot uh, FTR and sort of get, hit, get him over a barrel, so to speak, and then I guess blackmail him? I don't know. It's not a very well thought of plan because also she, she refuses, I should just say. She says, never, kill me if you must. Now, they could have just probably found a girl who was both beautiful and interested in, in overthrowing the U.S. government, uh, or at least doing, you know, just, like, flirting with a government official for money. I, I feel like that wouldn't be too hard of a stretch. Uh, but then I guess, how would the Crimson have figured this out? He wouldn't have. And then they would have won. And uh, the Crimson says, good girl, but I'll have to think fast if I'm going to save her. And uh, unfortunately for the Crimson, he is paying too much attention to this meeting, and uh, creeping up behind him is another man in red robes, and he pushes him out of the, this sort of overlooking balcony window sort of situation down onto the table of the meeting. And uh, these men in robes surround him and, and say, to the water dungeon with him, which is where they put bad water. Uh, no, it is, a, it is a room, as we find out, 
that once the door is closed, it starts to fill up. And I'm assuming if a switch is flipped because otherwise this door would just be open all the time. Uh, and it starts to fill up with water. The crimson uh, notices that this is going to take forever for me to drown in here. This water is coming in way too slowly. And he's, he's thinking, he's like, hmm, all right, so I'm going to remove some of these other bricks. A, I don't know how he does that because there'd be a lot of down pressure on these bricks. So I don't know if they would wiggle out very well, but he does it somehow and makes the hole bigger where the water's coming in. And then he sort of crawls through against the pressure of the water. So the crimson clearly hits the gym uh, because uh, water, you know, current is no joke. It is a very powerful force. And he gets up into what is a basically a well. Uh, that was storing water. I don't know how they get the water back up in there after they activate the water dungeon, but it doesn't matter. Stop asking so many questions. Uh, and he then comes up with a buckwild theory. He's like, oh, I can't climb these walls of this well. They're too smooth. But gas rises through the air. A, the air is a gas. Um, and so he uses his gas gun to fill up his cloak. Like he kind of makes it into sort of a sort of balloon situation. You know, like when, uh, if, you, if you ever took swimming lessons or survival training, uh, water survival training, they teach you to take off your pants and then tie the legs and then kind of slap water. Or you can blow it, blow water up inside. Like you can take mouthfuls of air underneath the water and blow it up. But like splash air into the, into the pants and then they make a sort of makeshift flotation device. He's basically doing that. He's like kind of making only one opening in his cloak, and then he's filling it up with the gas gun. So the gas gun gas is clearly some sort of gas that is lighter than air. But then how does it get to the mouths and the noses and the airways of the bad guys? It's a very, it's, it's interesting. And so he does enough of it. It's a very, it's a very, very like light gas, I guess. And he floats up to the top where there's a door. And outside the door, the cloaked men have brought this woman, whose name we never learn, uh, to this door and they say, you know, if you're not going to join us, then we're going to push you down this well we have built into our secret lair. Uh, but just that minute, uh, the Crimson Avenger busts through the door, gassing all the dudes and arresting them. Uh, and we then see the newspaper for the next day, you know, Crimson saves girl, captures ring that intended to rule world. USA was first on uh, list police notified. And then Mac, the the intrepid reporter of the Globe Leader, says, We sure scooped the other papers, boss. I'm glad the Crimson picked this paper to notify. Say, what did his voice sound like on the phone? And Lee Travis says, Oh, just the usual sort of voice, Mac. Like yours or mine. Wink. He doesn't say wink, but I added the wink. Wink. You know, because he's, he's the Crimson Avenger. Uh, so, yeah. It's a very, very, very light on any sort of details. Uh, story. A lot of action pieces, like I said. But it's a fine Crimson Avenger story. Uh, and that's going to do it for Detective Comics number 42. So let's move on to Adventure Comics number 53. Which, of course, has Our Man and Sandman in it. It was released July 9th, 1940, with a cover date of August 1940. And we do actually have a couple of debuts in this one. We have a very short-lived uh, debut, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, the city of Appleton City, which is... Uh, noted or revealed that that is the city that uh, our man lives and operates in it i said it was short-lived it is only it is only canon for this issue and the next issue and then it is no longer referred to as appleton city ever again uh but i just thought that that was a fun little i mean because you know the the dc universe is you know growing and and 
being established. Met- Metropolis exists and, and stuff like that, so Gotham will exist eventually. Um, but it's it's always nice when cities actually have names and they're not just like generic city. Uh, so we also have a debut of Minuteman Martin and the Minutemen of America, which are a group of young boy ham um, ham radio operators uh, who kind of are a sort of network of information for our men. So, uh, so let's get into the production side of this issue. Our man, of course, written by, uh, Gardner F. Fox and drawn by Bernard Bailey and Sandman, uh, written by Gardner F. Fox as well. And drawn by Craig or Krieg, uh, C-R-E-I-G, as I've said before, Flessel, Craig Flessel. Uh, so let's get into it with the Our Man story. The Our Man story starts with uh, Rex Tyler meeting the niece of his boss at, uh, if I remember correctly, Bannerman Chemicals. That might be incorrect, but it doesn't matter. Her name is Regina, and uh, his boss has asked him to sort of show her on show the her, wow show her the town and uh, kind of entertain her. For the day. Uh, so they go to the zoo and they see a lion and, and Regina, she mentions, oh, that beast gives me the shivers. Just imagine if he escaped. Like, come on, Regina, let's not be morbid. And uh, Rex says, oh, don't even talk about it because he's, of course, a fraidy cat when he's not uh, drugged. Uh, and then, uh, coincidentally, the keeper of the lion, the zoo employee, turns his back and it's uh, the cage must be like uh, Boo from Mario Brothers, where if you're not looking at it, it will come at you and attack you. So the lion escapes, and uh, it is it is rushing towards a small girl who is pushing a toy uh, bassinet, which is a I believe a stroller. And uh, he rushes at her, and of course Rex Tyler is trying to run away, but in the process of running away, he trips over a hose that was left lying around. Uh, slips on it and kicks it towards the lion, hitting it in the face, knocking it out. Um, and everyone's happy for him. You know, everyone's proud of him. They're, they think, wow, what a hero. And uh, he gets a kiss from Regina. Ooh. And um, she thought he was running away, but it's like, yeah, yeah, I, of course I was uh, just trying to, uh, you know, deal with the lion. Um, and he says, let's go eat. I'm hungry from all that saving little girls. We then cut to a factory in, in Appleton City uh, where uh, children, teens, I, I don't, their, their age isn't mentioned, but it's very, very important to know their age because if this story is set in 1940 and we presume that the DC universe has similar laws to what the United States has in reality, then... Employing children in factory work is illegal under the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, which uh, regulated that no one under the age of 14 can be implied in non-agricultural work, except for certain exceptions like for parents and for um, things like that. But if they're 14 to 16, then they can be... um, they can be employed in non-hazardous work for limited hours, and then 16 up, I believe, or maybe 17 up, uh, they can be employed in non-hazardous work for unlimited hours. Factories, I believe, are not a part of non-hazardous work underneath the the FLSA. So uh, this whole thing, this whole situation, this whole plot line of this story is, uh, if the like I said, if the laws are the same, is moot because 
this factory shouldn't be up and running anyways. But we'll just pretend, I guess, that uh, the DC Comics universe doesn't uh, follow the same laws, I guess, specific laws. Um, so it is the factory of a man named Tariff, which is funny, uh, just because tariffs have to do with um, you know production and exports, imports, stuff like that. Uh, and uh, an- another one of his boys, his employees, his his young employees, has died working. Uh, one of Tariff's underlings is tasked with going and getting Doc Blades, which I would never trust a doctor whose name was Doctor Blades. I just wouldn't. I just was like, mm. you could be like the squeakiest, cleanest doctor in the world, and I'd be like, your name is Doctor Blades. I just can't trust you. Um, but he asks his uh, one of his goons, one of his underlings, to go get Dr. Blades to say it was heart failure. That is, it was not due to overwork, underpaid, undernourished uh, situations or environment that the boys are working in. Uh, but, but a newspaper editor from Appleton City tells one of his reporters to look into it because there's another death. And that night, uh, when Rex Tyler is dining with Regina and her uncle, his boss, she is talking about, she's getting very, very worked up about it, very upset about it, as anyone with a heart would. Um, Of course, Rex Tyler's boss is like, why are you getting so upset? It's just kids dying in a factory. And she's like, because it's outrageous. Twelve children reported dead of heart failure in a factory run by a man named Tariff. So, twelve kids have died. That would feel suspicious in any factory, let alone a factory employing children. If 12, if 12 employees died and uh, assuming a, a time close enough that it's like, well, this is news, that would be like grounds for shutting down the factory. I don't care what time period you're in. If that many people are dying on the job, something is wrong. And so she, um, she kind of like gets the information to Rex Tyler in this way. It's like, she's like this boy, Martin, which you'll remember from the beginning. Um, he's dead and who's going to be next. And like these factories need to be dealt with. And, um, and Rex Tyler's like, yeah, she's, she's right. Children should be educated, made into men, not beasts. Although I don't know what working in a factory would turn you into a beast. Many people work in factories. It is a fine way to make a living. Goods need to be produced. That's just, the capitalistic nature of society we live in and the materialistic nature of society that we live in. It's just how it is. So after finishing dinner, Rex Tyler goes back to his apartment, takes a miraclo or miraclo, however you want to pronounce it, and uh, heads out on the town to pay the Martins a visit as our man. Now, when I first read this, I was wondering, now why do you need to take a miraclo to go talk to a family? Is it so that you're really confident? Maybe. But, like, your super strength and speed, it's like, well, that's not necessary. Uh, I'm, I'm proven wrong, obviously. So he goes to the Martin residence, and uh, the mother or father, I can't really tell from this image. I th- think it's a father. He's wearing a sweater, but women can also wear sweaters. Um, equality, such like that. Uh, they, whoever they are, is crying over their son. Um, and, and they're telling their, their other son, Billy, Billy Martin. Nope, not Billy. Jimmy. Jimmy Martin, because Billy's the one who died, that he needs to quit. And we'll, we'll learn about why his dad is telling him to quit a job. And uh, we'll, it'll, it'll make sense. And uh, 
Jimmy says, well, no, I, I, I want to tell the district attorney um, about all the bad stuff that's going on at the factory. But just at that moment, unasked, just barging in rudely, no manners, two goons from tariffs come in. And they're like, oh, we're just in time. we got to shut that kid's mouth. And the other one's like, yeah, he won't be able to talk with bandages over his mouth, which, fair. Very fair. But suddenly, also unasked, with no manners, our man busts through the door as well. And he beats up the two goons and, uh, and talks to Jimmy. And uh, Jimmy informs him that a man named Roberts has, had offered to purchase the factory uh, and make the uh, conditions working there better, but, uh, but Tariff refused. I'm assuming because he can continue, like it's, it's almost, it's not necessarily passive income, but it's almost passive income, you know? Uh, it's, a, it's more like long-term, you can continue to make money rather than just one big score. I mean, from a business standpoint, it makes sense. And uh, so Arrowman's like, okay, I'm going to go investigate. So a few minutes later, uh, Arrowman, uh, I guess, nicely opens the door and says, oh, don't be alarmed. I just want to talk to you about Tariff. And it's this man, Roberts. And Robert says, oh, that crook. It's a shame to work kids the way he does. The kids' fathers can't work because their own children get the jobs at less pay. So that is why his father, which I guess it wasn't, it wasn't like shown that his father didn't have a job, but I guess it's implied that Jimmy and Billy's father doesn't have a job, and they do because they work for less money, um, even though I don't know if you can necessarily pay kids less. But nope, we were going under the assumption that the FLSA does not exist in DC Comics Universe, so I'm not even going to bring it up. Not even going to bring it up. Uh, Iron Man says, thank you. That's all I wanted to know. Uh, if you still want to buy Tariff's factory, wait here for me. It's like, okay. Is it going to be today? Because this is an office. Do you want me to sleep here? Can I go home? He doesn't say that, but that's what I was thinking when I read it. It's like, because I, I think it must be implied. No, it must be the next day. Because the next, we're then in the factory again. And it was nighttime when our man went over to talk to the Martins. So yeah, I guess maybe Roberts has to sleep in his office. He does. If he wants to buy the factory, he has to sleep in his office. So... The next evening, wow, okay, so the factory works in the nighttime? Oh, they're working overtime. Man, you know what? I read this. just completely slipped my mind. So, um, uh, two goons or underlings are talking to Tariff, and they're saying, oh, this new machinery, you should be careful. The structure of the building's not good. It's, it's like weak, and this, this machinery could damage it. Uh, cause uh, structural damage, make it fall down, which is bad for buildings, if you don't know. And suddenly they notice a woman, older than the boys that normally work there, and also not a boy. Uh, And we see that it is Regina. She has secretly gotten a job, which the process must be so much faster than getting a job now, because as someone who just recently got a new job, it takes a long time. It takes a very, very long time. Uh, But factory work, I guess, is probably different than the work that I do so so maybe it is faster maybe it is uh, so she's worried about them kind of uncovering what she's doing which is snooping obviously getting dirt but not not for any person in particular just for the greater good and uh, they walk over and they say hey 
You've got uh, pretty hands. You wouldn't be a reporter, would you, sister? Better come into my office. She's like, no, no, let me go. And Tariff's like, spill it, sister. Who are you snooping for? And uh, suddenly Tariff's underling says, Tariff, look, it's the hour man. And the hour man rushes in and sort of uh, punches, throws, throws a punch or two at Tariff and his underling when suddenly the ceiling starts to give way, probably because of that new machinery. And I don't know what about the machinery would cause structural damage to the building. Maybe the, the shaking, the vibrating, stuff like that. But it does. And the ceiling starts to fall down. So the hour man, using his great strength from his pill, keeps it up and informs Regina to get the rest of the kids out. And she does. Uh, and then after letting the building, I'm assuming, collapse, or the ceiling at least collapse, hour man rushes out. And uh, Regina, uh, Regina, I almost called her Regina, um, which is a town in Canada, but because that's the way her name is spelled, um, that the, the two men are getting away, like Tariff and his underling. And so uh, our man rushes after them with his uh, enhanced speed and sees uh, the car come to a stop and Tariff go into a office building. And inside he talks to a bald, corrupt politician. And asks him to uh, use his pull to to get our man. I guess he's going to be like, all right, give me give me four to six weeks. I'm going to write a bill. I'm going to move it through uh, the houses of the state Congress. And we're going to ban our man. All right, is that fast enough for you? It's not. He's coming here right now. Well, shoot. Our man does burst in and... And uh, the, the politician rushes for a gun, but our man tackles him and dangles him out of a window and force... I, it's very confusing because he force, he's saying, will you sign the bill of sale for tariffs factory? And I don't know what the politician has to do with that. I don't know if there's a mix-up in the, 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 the artist and the, the writer communicating. Because in one, in one panel, Tariff is talking to this politician. And then in the next, Tariff is nowhere to be seen. He's not in the room. Our man doesn't like, not, like, talk to him or anything. He's not there. And it's only this bald politician who we're just meeting. So I don't know if it needs to get approved but I don't typically think that the government gets involved with sales. And I could be wrong. I've never sold a, a factory before, but it just it's very confusing because why is this politician being dangled out of a window uh, and, and forced to sign something when he doesn't own the factory? It's, uh, it's confusing. But he gets the bill of sale signed to Roberts and uh, goes back to uh, the Martin residence, and he talks to Jimmy. And explains the whole story, all the details, and uh, Jimmy's just uh, amazed. Then, our man notices uh, the device on uh, Jimmy's desk, and Jimmy explains that it's a ham radio, uh, which I don't know why it's called a ham radio. It has nothing to do with ham, doesn't use ham as a power source, or anything like that. Uh, but he explains, you know, amateur radio operators, they're, you know, they're called hams, apparently, and there's boys all over the country that, that use these, these radio, you know, devices. 
And our man has the bright idea of getting in contact with this network of, of amateur radio operators and using them as a sort of information web, like I explained at the beginning. And uh, they come up with the idea of calling them the Minutemen of America because A, it fits with the time motif of our man, and B, it uh, is a reference to the Revolutionary War where regular citizens were asked to be uh, able to be armed and ready in a minute's notice uh, in case of, you know, British activity, you know, stuff happens. Like, like famously, the Battle of Concord and Lexington was mostly Minutemen because the United States didn't really have an army at that time. So, uh, and they, they successfully, oh man, egg on my face if I get this wrong, because it's my whole area of expertise. They successfully sort of uh, fought off the British... Uh, for uh, enough time for the British to retreat, I believe, during the Battle of Concord and Lexington. And uh, it's the shot heard around the world. It's what started the Revolutionary War, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So he then, that night, uh, comes back to the Martin residence and sends out a message all across the country to all these boys with their ham radios and says, this is the Hour Man speaking, all of you who want to become Minutemen of America. Now, let's stop there. They don't know what that is. <laughs> They've never heard of it. This is a thing that uh, Jimmy and our man came up with this this afternoon, or or maybe this evening. One of the one of the two, and so they're just like with no warning, being like, "Hey, do you want to be in this club? Well, what's the club about?" And our man explains. He says, "Do you faithfully promise that as minute men you will strive for clean minds and bodies, obey your country's laws?" Love and honor your parents, and to play fair always. And we see a map of the United States. And there is a speech bubble with multiple sort of uh, pointers coming out of it. And it says, we do. So all these boys across the the country have decided to enlist in the uh, Our Man's Army of Minutemen. And so the Our Man puts a radio in his belt, and he will be able to get uh, contacted by these boys um with uh, trouble with problems all over the country now i don't know how if there's like a queue system or anything i don't know i don't think practically this would work because i feel like it would just constantly be squawking with all the ham operators you know talking but that's the plan i guess um and that's the end of the issue and it does say, what new adventures will the Hour Man find? Will his Minutemen be able to help him? Follow the adventures of the Hour Man and Minuteman Martin in every issue of Adventure Comics. Now, I don't know a lot about Minuteman Martin. And I don't know if he's going to become a recurring character and like a some sort of sidekick uh, to Hour Man. Because obviously after the introduction of Robin, sidekicks start to become very popular. Especially... Uh, young sidekicks so that the audience has a a sort of um stand-in uh in the stories like the 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 oath i'm assuming that's the comic saying like hey kids reading this do this you know clean minds and bodies obey the law love your parents play fair stuff like that um i don't think it's necessary i really don't because i mean if if minuteman martin does become a recurring one that will be the second sidekick and then obviously wing is the sidekick of the crimson avenger but he's not really established as a sort of actual sidekick right now he's just 
uh, Crimson Avenger and Lee Travis's driver, and he sometimes helps out. In a, in a while, he'll get his own costume and he'll be an actual you know hero. And then later on, we have Sandman getting um, Sandy, I believe, is his young sidekick. And uh, Green Lantern gets a, a sort of pseudo sidekick uh, who's just a guy, but um, sidekicks are becoming all the rage. All of the rage. Uh, but that's going to do it for the Minute Minute Man, Our Man story. Uh, so let's move on to the Sandman story. So the Sandman story starts off in a loan parlor, which uh, is a loan shark. Someone you get money from that isn't affiliated with a bank, typically some sort of gangster or mafia-related uh, person. And we see a gentleman telling this loan shark that he does not have the $500 that he borrowed uh, he, he couldn't he couldn't scrounge it up to pay back the loan. And uh, after he leaves, this man smoking a cigar tells two goons to go after him. So they set up around a corner as he is walking towards them. They jump out with um, fists and a, a, a blackjack. Do you know, if you don't know what a blackjack is, it is a, it is a hard piece of metal covered by leather. Uh, that's that's often used by uh, police as a way to non-lethally subdue criminals uh, or uh, suspected criminals, I guess. Uh, so they beat him up pretty good. Uh, they say, take the 500 out of him. So I guess this beating is worth $500. Wow. Um, and they rush off. But uh, unluckily for them, the Sandman was uh, patrolling. And he thought he heard somebody yelling. So he runs up and he finds the man beaten up and asks him, who beat you up? And he, of course, says, uh, some toughs. I didn't have $500 for their boss uh, that runs uh, a loan shark den. Um, and he brings, Sandman brings the man home and says that he'll take care of them and asks who the boss is. And this guy tells him where it's at. The Sandman then drives the Sandman mobile over to the loan shark den and jumps through the glass window uh, of the door and uh, says, I'm not going to bother with delicate treatment here. Just going to blast in. Fair. I just feel like that's going to rip up your clothes and maybe cut you, Sandman. Uh, so he rushes in and he beats up a goon and another goon comes at him with a chair. He kicks that goon in the face and finally grabs the boss and says, I came directly to see you. If you don't haul your business out of here, you won't have any. And, of course, the, the boss is like, oh, the Sandman. And Sandman's like, right, I saw what you did to that man who borrowed money from you. Now clear out. And uh, I guess uh, the Sandman just leaves him to his business because the next panel is the Sandman driving away. But he's wondering, does that sort of treatment work? Should I be using other methods? And he gets home and he's changing out of his Sandman costume into his Wesley Dodds costume and... And he is like, I have other methods. I'm wealthy as Wesley Dodds. I could maybe do something. I don't know. Could you, Wesley? You have all this money. Uh, he just doesn't like watching poor people beaten up when they owe money. He would just prefer that they have no money. Uh, and he's smoking a cigarette, kind of thinking. He's like, I wonder if my threats will have any effect. And uh, he's reading the newspaper. Must be the next day. Doesn't say, but it must be the next day. Uh, or days later, he says, ugh. Man murdered, borrowed money from loan concern, so they didn't listen to my warning. 
He then dons his Sandman costume and runs off. And he says, I'll pay a Sub Rosa visit to the dead man's home. I don't know what Sub Rosa means, but he's going to pay them a visit. We then cut to the home of the murdered man, whose name is Jenks. His last name is Jenks, not like Jenkins or anything. It's Jenks, J-E-N-K-S. And uh, this woman is talking to an older woman whose name is Ma Jenks. She says, ah, too bad, Ma Jenks. Bill had oughta to paid that dough, though. That is the worst sentence. It's a bad sentence. And Ma Jenks is like, he borrowed it for me, too. I needed an operation. I needed a vague operation. And there, you know, she's giving her platitudes. Like, oh, he's in a better place now. He's better off. It's like, shut up, my son, I'm assuming, just died. Uh, I don't need platitudes. Uh, when suddenly a man walks in, and he's got a face of a man that's just a real dick. And she says, Gunny, which I cannot, I, I just, I cannot believe that that's his real name. If his real name is Gunny, and he is a gunman for the mob, that is just too much of a coincidence. That's more of like a, you're setting your child up for a specific career path by naming them Gunny. It's got to be a nickname. But uh, she's asking him what he's doing here. And then, weirdly, like, in front of his, uh, the dead man's mom and whoever this blonde woman is who, who's been talking to her, he's like, oh, Dolly, I came over to make sure Jenks got his. And uh, she's like, what do you mean, got his? And uh, he says, wise up, Dolly. Ain't I the finger man for the mob? Why are you telling this to people? Keep that to yourself. You're the worst hitman ever. You don't go around talking about how you're a hitman for the mob, dummy. And uh, obviously at this time, Sandman is eavesdropping from outside through the window. And this blonde woman, she says, or Dolly, I guess her name is, says, you mean you killed him? And a gunny says, uh, don't go blabbing your mouth off like that. You just were just talking about how you're the gunman for the mob. And you're talking about her blabbing? Come on. Have some, like, like uh, awareness like of yourself and what you're, what's coming out of your mouth. Uh, Sandman then jumps through the window and gasses. I'm assuming everybody, because it's not really a pinpoint accurate sort of thing. Because the gas looks to be going around Dolly and Gunny. Um, he says, I'll borrow Gunny if you don't mind. So I'm assuming he just gasses this woman. Hopefully there's no adverse effects to the gas. Because you shouldn't really gas innocent people if there are. You really shouldn't gas, well, non-innocent people either. If there's adverse effects like cancer, brain damage, or memory loss, something like that. He uh, takes Gunny and puts him in the Sandman mobile, drives him to the police station, drops him off, and then jumps out the window. And uh, he then hangs from the window sill to overhear the police interrogating Gunny. And Gunny, of course, folds immediately because his boss, quote-unquote, didn't do nothing to save me. How would he know? You were just delivered by a vigilante in the middle of the night. Uh, so he says the boss muzzled in on the loan racket six months ago, charging high interest rates. If anyone squawked, I went after them. If they didn't pay, they got beat up, then shot if they didn't come across. So I don't know why you need to beat them up and shoot them. Just shoot them. Uh, unless it's like a step process. It's like we beat you up, you don't pay, you get shot, which makes more sense from a business standpoint. Because a beaten up and shot man in the same go cannot pay you back your money. 
Gunny then says the boss is Gorilla Gus. Uh, Slick Sam fronts for him as an official of the loan business. Slick Sam is the man we met earlier uh, that Sandman sort of threatened to leave town. Uh, there ought to be records there at Slick Sam's office. Sandman jumps in the Sandman mobile, drives to the loan shop uh, before the police can get there, gasses some goons, uh, and opens the door and just says, Ah, look, just as I was expecting, Slick Sam. And uh, Slick Sam says, I thought you'd return Sandman, and he has a gun in his hand. And Sandman says, You know me good. That's Sandman, that's grammatically incorrect. You know me well. Superman does good. And Sandman says, that makes it easier. And uh, Slick Sam attempts to shoot Sandman. Uh, Sandman dives to the ground, grabs uh, Slick Sam by the ankles and kind of topples him over. And then uh, some more of uh, Slick Sam's, that doesn't really roll off the tongue very well. Slick Sam's goons come through the door. And uh, beat up Sandman. Beat him up good. It's three on, it's three on one. Uh, so outnumbered. And they knock him out. And they shove him in the car. And drive him away. Uh, as police sirens uh, are, you know, peeling out in the, in the air. And Slick Sam says, oh, the coppers. Uh, and him and the rest of the boys leave the uh, lone den with all their records. And once the police get there. Uh, they, they realize that nobody's there, uh, all the records are gone, and the place is a mess. So they lock up the, the place so that nobody else goes in there, for evidence sake, and they leave. Not knowing that the Sandman has been captured by these loan sharks. They then, uh, the loan sharks, drive Sandman to a apartment building, a hotel, an office building. It's not, sh- it's not clear. And they drag him upstairs, and they open the door... And they are welcomed in by Gorilla Gus. And would you like to give a guess to the hairstyle that this master loan shark gangster villain has? That's right. He's bald. And uh, this is Gorilla Gus, obviously. And he says that they'll wait. Uh, They're going to uh, wait until they're ready to, you know, kind of fade away, uh, go on the lam, get away from the police, the heat stuff. And before they do, they'll kill the Sandman. Now, as a fellow bald man, which makes me a master criminal, I don't think that you should do that. I think you should kill uh, Sandman immediately. Just shoot him right in the face. Just shoot him right in the face be done with it. Okay? You can deal with the body however you want. Just shoot him right in the face and be done with it. But they don't do that. They put Sandman in a bedroom. I'm assuming they locked the door. It's not said. Uh, and Sandman wakes up a little bit later. And he opens the door so it's not locked. Not locked at all. And he overhears that the entire gang, the entire Gorilla Gus Lone Shark gang, will be here in a few minutes. And we got the evidence of our rackets here. They got their records. So they're going to burn them, and then they're going to get out of town. So the Sandman uh, ducks out the window and sort of shimmies uh, along a ledge. Uh, He's very worried he's going to fall down, which I would be as well. He's, he's hoping that his feet stick like glue. Um, and then somehow he gets down to the ground level. I don't know. It, it looks like he just jumps off the building. It's not explained. Um, it, it, so he's down on the ground floor, and he meets a police officer who says, Get your riot squad, blah, sorry. Get your riot squad here in half an hour. That loan shark gang will be upstairs then. 
and uh, the police, of course, is the police officer is of course like, well, I don't, I don't really know if you're a sane person, um, but I'll, I'll make I'll, I'll make the tip to the to the riot squad. So, uh, Sandman, wanting to keep all the gangsters in one place, goes back upstairs via the indoor staircase. This time, he doesn't somehow travel up the outside of the building like Batman. He doesn't have suction cups. And uh, he looks around the corner. He says, Slick Sam must have come down to meet those gangsters. Now the gang is all together. Yes, Sam, and we know that. He said it. So we see inside of the hotel, apartment, whatever you want to call it. And uh, Gorilla Gus is telling his guys to uh, to split, to get out of here. And uh, Sam is like, oh, no, they're ready to leave. And the cops aren't here yet. And Gorilla Gus is talking to Slick Sam and he's like, all right, now it's time to deal with Sandman. And Slick Sam's like, what a great idea, boss. Uh, and they go in the room where Sandman's supposed to be, and he's not there. And, of course, that means he's gone to the cops. Like a snitch. Just kidding. He's a, he's a vigilante. Of course, he's going to inform the authorities. Uh, Sandman then busts into the hotel, apartment, whatever, and starts beating up goons left and right single-handedly. He, uh, he pulls out his gas gun. He's going to gas him. Uh, when uh, Gorilla Gus comes out of the room where Sandman previously was uh, with a gun himself, shoots Sandman's gas gun right out of his hand. Expert crack shot. And uh, then so Sandman has to do hand-to-hand. And he's dealing with the goons uh, in hand-to-hand combat. He's sort of grappling with one as Gorilla Gus is attempting to uh, shoot Sandman. Uh, it's it's not it's not implied uh, what happens if if Gorilla Gus actually shoots this gangster. It just says so. Gorilla Gus says, "Stand aside, let me plug him," which means to shoot uh, the Sandman. And uh, so the, the gangsters jump out of the way. So they do get out of the way. They do get out of the way. And uh, Sandman has to quickly move with the rapidity of thought. Now let's talk about this. Thought is about three times faster than hearing. So you take three times faster than the, the speed of sound. And this might all be cra- like crackpot, you know, pseudoscience. But that's just what I remember learning from back in the day. Uh, so he moves very fast, very like flash speeds almost. And he, he jumps through the door and locks it behind him, uh, locking all of the gangsters in the room. He then jumps out the window. He says, this worked once. Why not again? Shimmies around the outside of the building and comes back in through the window behind the gangsters grabs his gas gun gasses them all one by one leaving them all unconscious uh unlocks the door by picking it then locks it behind him to keep them in there you know don't want your you know captured criminals to be escaping and then a few minutes later the police finally arrive the riot squad and find a note left by the Sandman saying, here are our gangsters with the evidence in in the case presented by the Sandman. What a guy. And uh, the police uh, mentioned, I bet it was easy for the Sandman. We're basically useless. He doesn't say we're basically useless, obviously, but they basically are, just like the regular police. Uh, We then see the final caption box or the final panel says, but we know it wasn't so easy, quote unquote. Don't miss the next thrilling Sandman adventure published in each and every issue of Adventure Comics. Uh, So that's going to do it for the Sandman issue. And that's also going to do it for 
uh, Adventure Comics number 53. And that's also going to do it for this episode. Because the next issue is Superman number 6, which has four Superman stories in it. And I felt that it was going to make this episode too long and unwieldy. Uh, So I'm going to save that for next week, next Monday. Uh, So let's do standard plug things. Obviously, most of you are probably shutting off the podcast right now because you're like me or the average podcast listener. Uh, But we're on socials, Instagram, Twitter, threads, all of them. YouTube, I am slowly but surely uploading all of the Crisis episodes to YouTube, and now I can upload the Golden Age episodes because uh, a couple a couple of the early ones are over two hours, and for a while, my podcast host wouldn't upload uh, episodes longer than two hours, but now it does, so I'm going to slowly but surely get all of the episodes up on YouTube, and then new episodes will be going up on YouTube, you know, probably a day or so after they go up on the you know podcast feed. So if you're a, if you're a YouTube person, you like to you know throw it on your computer, listen to it while you're doing other stuff on the computer. That that's for you. Uh, as always, rate and review the podcast on whatever podcast service you use. It 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 helps out. It lets people know, hey, this guy, he's not an idiot. He knows what he's doing. You know, lie to him. But that's going to do it for me. For this episode, uh, for the Golden Age episodes, I will see you all on Friday when we will be be continuing our uh, travels through the 1980s, 1985, on uh, issue-by-issue crisis. So until then, I am your host, Nick Byers, and I'll see you around. (laughs) 